This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to tonight's event, the launch of the Caldor Centre Principles on Australian Refugee Policy. Let me begin by acknowledging that we meet on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I would like to pay my respects to the Elders, past, present and future, and extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples with us today. Thank you very much to Watton and Carney for hosting us here tonight, and to all of you for coming. I would also like to acknowledge Andrew and Renata Caldor, as well as Hal Wooten, the founding dean of UNSW, and his wife Gillian. We are honoured that David Gonski AC has agreed to launch the Caldor Centre Principles for us. As one of Australia's most respected leaders, he hardly needs much introduction. David Gonski is the Chancellor of UNSW and Chairman of the University's Foundation. His leadership in business, philanthropy and education is vast. He is Chairman of the ANZ Banking Group and President of the Art Gallery of New South Wales Trust. He serves on the boards of the Sydney Airport Corporation and the Lowy Institute for International Policy and also on the ASIC External Advisory Panel. He's a patron of the Australian Indigenous Education Foundation and the Youth Mentoring Raise Foundation. He is a founding panel member of Adara Partners a business for purpose group that delivers expert financial services with the fees generated on transactions going directly to benefit people living in extreme poverty. And of course, he chaired what was officially named the Review to Achieve Educational Excellence in Australian Schools for the Commonwealth Government of Australia, but we, which we all know, of course, as the Gonski Review. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome David Gonski. Thank you, Jane. Firstly, ladies and gentlemen, I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this building stands, and I also thank the dog for just hitting it <laughs> at the right moment. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the marvellous things about being a Chancellor, um, and a Chancellor of a university that has 6,000 staff, uh, three campuses, and 52,000 students, is that every night you're asked to go and launch something, talk about something, or indeed just look stupid, which I find quite easy to do. So what I have done over the years is realised that the, the meaning of a Chancellor is to say no, not to say yes. So I wanted to tell you why I said yes to being here tonight. And I have to say, when Jane rang me, I did say yes straight away. I have three very big reasons for wanting to be here tonight. Firstly, I am so proud that the Caldor Centre is at the University of New South Wales. I love the fact that the issue of refugees is actually being dealt with, thought about, and actually mature thought being put into at our place. It is my view that universities have to step outside, have to at least try to deal with important issues and try to aid the debate that's going on. I also feel that there's a lot of emotion 
in the issue of refugees. And I love the fact that Jane and the team at the Caldor Centre basically bring some thinking which is based on research, based on pure thinking, and also, if I may, as an old lawyer, and it's wonderful to have my old dean here, is based on legal thought. And we do need research in the law very generally. But finally, on the Caldor Centre, I love the structure of it. I love the fact that it's a talented team at what you'd expect me to say, a wonderful university, and also that it is funded by a marvellous family. And I absolutely thank Renata and Andrew and compliment them on not just getting involved, but staying involved. And I really appreciate it. The second reason that I wanted to be here is Jane. When you are a chancellor, you have aspirations, believe it or not, for your university. And the aspirations I have are to have people of enormous excellence. At our place, they're called Scientia professors. And for those of you who know our place, we don't have many of them. Jane is one of them. Jane has this ability, and I've read most of her stuff. She has an ability to take the complex and make it simple. An awful lot of our staff and most of the people I deal with are great at making the simple complex. <laughs> she has, in my view, a firm foot, and I hope she does, at our university. But at the same time, she straddles another university, Harvard. She has a background in working at Brookings and places that I just aspire to have the same reputation as for our university. How could I say no to the excellence that she brings to what she does? And the final reason I'm here tonight is that I really believe that the publication of principles will be a great step forward in the debate. All of us know the debate rages. All of us know most of what's said in the debate is actually emotional and often not thought through. The very least these principles will do is to start the debate amongst about those principles. And the very most it will do, which is just marvellous, will be to influence the policies as people, I hope, take those principles and say, are we doing it within this principle or are we not? I love the fact, as I read through the principles, that there is good arguments for each one. So we're not only setting out for a debate, but we're setting out, frankly, the arguments for those principles. So now, if people don't agree, and they're entitled to do that, they have to bring some science, some thinking, some intellect to actually saying this is wrong. And I think that's an enormous donation to the debate. So I'm here tonight as someone who's had no part in the principles, who has had no part really in bringing the Caldor Centre together, to gloat that it is at my university, that it is producing wonderful papers such as these principles and to encourage all of you to read them, to enjoy them. If you don't agree with them, argue, but argue at the high level that Jane and her group bring to it. I think I am to formally launch, I don't know how you launch principles. I might ask if the dog would bark at this point. <laughs> um, but I do launch these principles with great joy and indeed great compliments to the team and to those who've brought this wonderful centre into existence. Thank you. We have a most obliging dog. <laughs> Thank you very, very much, Chancellor, for your generous words about the Caldor Centre and its work, and also for your
very kind remarks about my own work. It means a great deal to us to have your support. And we're so grateful that in the midst of all your commitments and important engagements, you gave us your time this evening. It's wonderful to be part of an institution such as UNSW that really does genuinely value academic engagement with real world issues and to have your endorsement of our approach signifies, I think, the importance that the university attaches to this kind of policy-oriented research. We hope that you'll accept this small gift as a token of our appreciation. At the end of the Second World War, Prime Minister Chifley welcomed 170,000 displaced people from the camps of Europe. And as Thomas Keneally has noted, he did this without convening a single focus group. <laughs> when Prime Minister Fraser was confronted by votes of Vietnamese asylum seekers to Australia's north, they were treated humanely, processed fairly, and given protection. And Fraser encouraged the general public to understand that this was what they deserved. Fraser evidently succeeded. Hugh Van Ley, the Governor of South Australia, said that when he arrived by boat in Darwin in 1977, he was greeted by a tinny with two blokes in, sh in shorts and singlets with the first beers of the day in their hands. <laughs> they waved and steered their boat very close, raised their stubbies and shouted, G'day mate, welcome to Australia. A decade later, following the Tiananmen Square massacre, Prime Minister Hawke announced that more than 40,000 Chinese students in Australia could stay if they wanted to. It was an instinctive decision that he simply put down to leadership. He didn't consult anyone, and when he walked off the dais and was told, you can't do that, Prime Minister, he said, I just did, it's done. For 75 years, Australia has given thousands of refugees the chance of a new life, fresh opportunities, and renewed hope. And in return, refugees have given back to Australia, making significant and transformative contributions, economically, culturally, and socially. But in the past 25 years, our approach to refugees has changed direction. Successive governments have introduced and then hardened policies of indefinite and mandatory detention, offshore processing, boat turnbacks, temporary protection, family separation, curtailed rights of appeal, cuts to legal assistance, and so on. Many of these practices are not only out of step with community values of fairness and decency, but they squarely violate Australia's international legal obligations, and they undermine a sustainable and humane response to refugees globally. A successful refugee policy not only manages borders, it also protects people who need safety. And that's why we've developed the Caldor Centre Principles on Australian Refugee Policy, which are designed to serve as a stable foundation for policy making in this area. They are grounded in evidence-based research and are informed by good practices, both from Australia's own past as well as from overseas. They provide concrete examples of how and why Australia can create a manageable system, one that simultaneously benefits refugees, people seeking asylum, 
and the Australian community as a whole. Now more than ever, it's important to shape a long-term vision for Australian refugee policy, decoupled from the particular politics of the day. The approach we set out in the Cowlaw Centre principles is both principled and pragmatic, realistic and achievable. So, what do they say? Well, first, we must comply with our international legal commitments and not send people back to harm. We must give everyone seeking asylum the chance to fully present their claim. Part of this means bringing our Migration Act into compliance with international law. Since 2014, Australian law has provided that officials do not have to consider our international obligations when removing someone seeking asylum. This is unprecedented. Most uh, liberal democracies, including Canada, New Zealand, all the member states of the European Union and the United States, include direct reference to international refugee and or human rights instruments in their legislation that mandate that people must not be removed to any place where they face a real risk of being persecuted or a real risk of serious harm. Many countries have actually enshrined the right to asylum in their national constitutions. Secondly, Australia should provide humane and fair reception conditions rather than detaining people. Australia arguably has the most restrictive detention policy in the world and this combined with offshore processing costs billions of dollars that could be redirected towards more effective and humane alternatives. For instance, many European countries have replaced the detention of asylum seekers with alternatives, letting them live in the community or in open centres. National laws in most, South, in most South American countries prohibit immigration detention. If other countries do use detention, it's usually for the briefest possible period to conduct identity, health and security checks. On average, asylum seekers are detained in Australia for 500 days. And some have been detained for more than five years with at least one man now in detention for nine years. This is so vastly out of step with detention practices elsewhere. In Europe, for instance, the average length of time of detention is 90 days and much less in many countries. The third principle is that we should give people a fair hearing in contrast to the current fast track procedure which discriminates against certain refugees and lacks procedural safeguards. Asylum seekers should also be provided with support, legal support, to present their claims. We know that when people have good legal advice and get a fair chance to put forward their claim, they are more likely to accept the decision, whatever the outcome. This also inspires public confidence in the system. In Denmark, for example, there is an automated appeal process for all rejected claims, prompting, uh, promoting better quality decision making at the initial stages and avoiding the need for rejected applicants to lodge their own appeal. Canada and France, for example, have instigated independent evaluations of their country's asylum procedures with the, public, with the findings made public. Fourthly, we must keep families together and respect the best interests of children. We believe that an independent guardian should be appointed for unaccompanied children rather than that person being the minister who clearly has a conflict of interest. Family reunion rights should be restored for all refugees, no matter how they arrived. 
In the Netherlands, for example, unaccompanied children are placed under the guardianship of an independent agency. And in Sweden, there is a children's ombudsman that represents children's rights and monitors Sweden's implementation of its international obligations. Fifthly, Australia should create complementary, safe and lawful pathways to protection, including by creating special humanitarian intakes for people fleeing particular crises, by creating educational opportunities through scholarships and student visas, and by supporting community and private sponsorship of refugees. Canada's successful private sponsorship scheme, which has operated for 40 years, allows groups of people, whether they be friends, universities, businesses, church groups and the like, to sponsor refugees to come to Canada. And that program has assisted close to 300,000 people. It's also been transformative, both for the refugees themselves and for Canadian society and attitudes towards people seeking asylum. Australia here could build on some of our own past practices. For instance, we did implement a special humanitarian intake for Syrian and Iraqi refugees just a few years ago on top of the existing resettlement quota. In the 1980s, Australia would process people in their own countries and enabled several hundred people to be resettled from Latin America. Australia also used to operate its own community re refugee resettlement scheme. Our sixth point is that Australia should again be a global and regional leader on protection, including by expanding our resettlement program and by promoting protection in our own region as well as globally. Here we can look back to the comprehensive plan of action that was developed for Indo-Chinese refugees. And from 1979, this enabled millions of refugees to be resettled in a number of countries, including Australia. In Africa and Latin America, there are regional refugee agreements. And in, in other parts of the world too, there are other sorts of dialogues that help to foster regional cooperation. Seventh, Australia needs to invest in refugees for long-term success. For a start, we should abolish temporary protection, which causes significant psychological harm and hinders people's ability to get on with their lives. We need to support refugees' education and skills so that they can contribute to their own well-being and that of their families and the wider community. For instance, the German government, together with private donors, has implemented a program that gives scholarships to refugees in over 50 countries. It enables them to study and acquire more skills and in that way give back to their communities. In Canada, the World Education Service has trialled alternative methods of verifying people's qualifications so that when a doctor comes, they can then continue to work as a doctor rather than having to, to retrain in another area. We would argue that this is what international responsibility sharing and the promotion of protection is all about. It gives people hope, dignity, and a way to reclaim their identity and plan for their futures. Ladies and gentlemen, no country can possibly respond to displacement on their own. And as the world's governments themselves acknowledged last year in the Global Compact on Refugees, the predicament of refugees is a common concern of humankind. Every country depends on the combined resources, promises and goodwill of the international community to provide assistance and protection. 
The UN High Commissioner for Refugees has said that no one becomes a refugee by choice, but the rest of us can have a choice about how we help. Every day, Australia's policies are causing harm to men, women and children who have committed no crime, but to seek the protection of one of the world's most stable and peaceful democracies. As the High Commissioner has also said, ignoring a crisis and then demonising its victims when they are forced to move <coughs> is not a proper approach. It's better to face the task head on with compassion and practical solutions. Burying one's head in the sand won't solve anything. Allowing people to achieve their potential will. Ladies and gentlemen, I invite you to consider the Caldor Centre Principles on Australian Refugee Policy as a means of finding those compassionate and practical solutions and recognising refugees as people. People who, as in generations past, have become our neighbours, colleagues, friends and family. The production of the Caldor Centre Principles has been a team effort and I would like to thank all the members of our team for their insights. I would like to express our particular thanks to Dr Tamara Wood for her work on the development of the principles, as well as to the Caldor Centre's advisory committee, steering committee, affiliate members and colleagues in the wider sector who provided us with constructive feedback throughout the process. Thank you again to Watton and Carney for hosting us tonight and particularly to Heidi Nash-Smith, Sarah Villanueva and Jessica Smith for their support. And finally, thank you again to David Gonski for making time in your exceptionally busy schedule to support our work and for your generous comments. Please enjoy the rest of your evening.
One of our real challenges is changing the conversation. And this can do it. Because this is a well done, a great effort. Also, I just thought your thoughts today come 